Welcome to another episode of What's at Stake, a Penta podcast. I'm Brian DeAngelis, a partner here at Penta, and today I'm joined by my colleague Alberto Lopez Valenzuela, a senior partner at Penta, and Ennis McPhee, managing director at Oxford Economics. We're going to talk about our, our new partnership together, studying economic turning points, including some fascinating insights on the labor market and labor trends from a joint study we released this past <clears throat> December. Oxford Economics and Penta, in my mind, are, are pretty natural partners for this kind of research. Oxford Economics is one of the world's foremost data-driven economic advisory firms. Penta, as our listeners know, is a leading provider of market intelligence and data, especially around stakeholders and economic trends. So this joint report we did and this partnership we're undertaking has already yielded some really interesting insights, which we're starting to see out here at the beginning of 2023. So for starters, Innes, why don't you just kind of kick us off at the beginning? For our listeners who may not know, tell me a little bit more about your work at Oxford Economics, the work your team is doing, and then we'll get into kind of the work we're doing together. Yeah, thanks very much, Brian. So as you say, Oxford Economics is a is a data-driven economic advisory firm. And, and really, that means that we're trying to get a read on what's happening in the economy globally and across all the markets that we cover, um, really to help our clients understand the external environment for their businesses, but also you know, make better decisions and, and, and plan on the, that basis. And my role within that our organization is really to lead our macroeconomic forecasting and research uh, division, which covers more than 200 countries worldwide. And, and really what we're trying to do is help clients, which range from corporates to governments to asset managers and other financial institutions, really understand what's going on, where the turning points are in the economy and what that might mean for the types of decisions that they're, they're trying, to, trying to make. So really understanding the economy real time, but also understanding the long-term challenges is our, our, our day-to-day job. That's great. And Alberto, let me swing it over to you. How do you see this partnership between Oxford Economics and Penta fitting into our broader project to strengthen decision-making and understanding for businesses and their stakeholders? At Penta, we have, a, as you know, a unique and rich data set of stakeholder sentiment that goes back to nearly 10 years. So we are constantly looking for innovative insights and new applications that um, would provide better answers to the questions that our clients have, such as where do we stand, what is likely to happen tomorrow. So we had conversations now with Oxford Economics for that go back to 18 months, and we both got really curious about how high-frequency sentiment data could be a lead indicator to economic indicators. Fundamentally, we, we, we got into this with an open mind, and we wanted to test the hypotheses. Ines, tell us tell us more about that hypothesis before we kind of dive into the key takeaways. Why did we do this? What's what's the value of this data in your view? Yeah, I think really as Alberto said, I mean, standing back for a second, economic data tends to be pretty lagging. So, you know, here we are kind of at the start of February. Um, we're starting to know a little bit about how the economy performed at the end of 2022. So the published data, the official data is pretty lagged by its very nature. Uh, It's not really telling us very much about what's happened 
you know, in the last couple of weeks, for example. So, you know, a key element of the value in this data is really the timeliness. So we're really getting a read on what's happening in terms of sentiment and the way that you know, economic agents, whether it be firms or people, are understanding or, or reacting to their environment. We're, we're really getting that information in, in real, real time. And because it's kind of sentiment, that also gives us a little bit of a lead relative to what people actually do. So people start to feel you know, more anxious about the economic environment, but then they also will start to think, okay, fine, what do I, how do I actually act? And that, that right. process is obviously a little bit, a bit lagged. Now, that timeliness point is so critical when you're in a turning point of the economy. So a bit like we are now, there's a lot of debate about whether we're going into recession, whether we might get a soft landing, all those sorts of things. Well, policymakers, business leaders, they're trying to make decisions on the basis of those sorts of conversations at the moment and really having really up-to-date information, really timely data um, can help really improve the quality of those decisions. So I think I think that's the major value add is getting a better read on the economy almost in, in real time relative to the official data, which at best is lagged by a couple of weeks, at worst by quite a few months. Let me ask you this, and uh, I, I do not count myself among the skeptics. I found this really interesting, but I think a skeptic would say that we are reacting to a snapshot in time and some of that lagging data is important to see those trends. But I think we can cover trends here as well. But but I'm curious, either one of you, what, what would you say to the skeptics who think this is too much of just a, a quick screenshot of what's happening in the economy? First of all, I wouldn't say that we're trying to use this data in isolation. You know, clearly a lot of what we've done in the paper that we've published is to is to correlate it with the, those official uh, metrics. This, you know, no alternative data source is there to replace the official data, or um, in, in some ways to try and you know create an, a, a new read on the economy that that doesn't have any reference points. But I think one of the ways you get around that, and and I think we try to demonstrate, is this is a kind of global data set. So whilst we're you know monitoring what going on in the US, obviously, you can also be applied to Europe or even the, the large emerging markets as well. So that gives you more and more confidence that the techniques that you're applying, you know, if they replicate re reasonable results in other countries are indeed sensible and, and can be used. You know, what we've done so far, I think, is really scratched the surface of this data set and, and what we can do with it, because, you know, we're looking obviously at, at large economies, but I think there's a lot that can be done in terms of understanding what's happening below a, um, a country level. So what's happening in, in locations, subnational locations, understanding how different cities or metro areas look relative to each other. And that's an area where, you know, the official data is probably a little bit more limited and certainly more lagging. Fair. Yeah, fair. And, and obviously that would be uh, incredibly insightful to companies and CEOs and boards as they try to navigate this economy. Alberto, let me ask you, do you think there's a chance that this stakeholder sentiment, that the high frequency data we're looking at and analyzing in combination with different economic indicators, can that actually drive economic outcomes here? Stakeholder sentiment, it's, it's a proxy that indicates which issues get most amplified and how different stakeholders feel about those issues. That conditions current and future decisions because that really drives how people feel. I think that saying that it's driving economic outcomes is risky. However, I think it's fair to say that the mood that people have will influence how 
how they feel about the economy, how they feel about the the, the prospects, and therefore is likely to have a change in spending habits, which in turn have an impact on economic indicators. So from from our perspective, I think there's a very strong case to validate whether there's a connection or not, and that's what we wanted to do with this exercise. And then, as Ines said, we're sort of scratching the surface here and understand how far that connection actually goes. I think driving economic outcomes, it's, you know, there are many factors that drive economic outcomes. Right. But actually, certainly from what I've se- we've seen so far, I think it's fair to say that certainly there's a connection. Yeah. And I think it certainly is a um, piece of the puzzle as those Mm -hmm. leaders try to figure out what's happening in the economy and understanding consumers and confidence and whether we've we've done some related research around, you know, confidence in getting a job in six months, confidence in buying a new home in six months, relatedly, um, really understanding that'll help leaders. Um, so with that, uh, that's a, we've, we've done a long wind up there, which was my fault, but I thought it was important, but let's, let's dive right into the report itself. So Ines, um, your team of, of analysts found that labor markets across a range of advanced economies are rapidly cooling and that's different in, in different countries, but it is sending a strong signal that labor markets globally are finally starting to respond to some of the tightening financial conditions. We are, I should note, recording this February 1st. So we'll have a a U.S. Federal Reserve announcement today where they'll probably increase uh, rates again by a quarter of a point. And then we'll have the January jobs report on Friday. But curious, tell um, tell us what you found. Let's dive into some of the highlights of the report a little bit. Yeah. So I think there were three key things that that stood out to us from the data. Like you said, overall, we were quite comforted to see that there was a broad-based moderation in employment growth, um, really in, in a number of countries around the world and all the major economies. Um, comforted because, in a sense, that helped to validate some of the um, some of what we were expecting to happen in the economy in terms of the pass through of interest rates and of higher energy prices into firms and their their hiring decisions. And since the paper has been uh, published, you know, we've really seen that borne out by the official data as well. One of the things that we also pointed to was the fact that there was a sort of differential pace in some economies. So, for example, in the UK and France, we're already seeing employment falling back. Places like Germany and Italy, for example, were cooling very rapidly, albeit from quite strong starting points already. Um, and again, that's something that's, that's subsequently come out in the in the official data. For the US, uh, what was interesting to us was that the slowdown in employment growth has been far more gradual than those European economies I've just mentioned. And that really suggested to us that the Federal Reserve would have to continue on its agenda of, of raising interest rates and keeping monetary conditions um, very tight. Probably slightly better news um, from the Fed's point of view and other central banks was we really didn't see much evidence that wage growth, which is a really important input into broader inflation, we didn't see much input and much evidence that wage growth was taking off. So there's this big worry that actually higher inflation is going to ultimately lead right. to people asking for really big 
pay rises and that becomes self-fulfilling. We didn't see any evidence of that, um, which was which was pretty good. What we did see was the fact that wage growth was expected to be really quite strong at the end of the year, surprisingly strong um, in places like the UK. And again, that's something that came out of the official data that's been published since we since we did the paper. And then the final um, point I think that really comes out in the data and that we tried to bring out in the in the white paper was that consumer sentiment was actually holding up quite well and that consumer spending was therefore expected to hold up relatively well. That's really quite a big contrast to the more traditional measures of consumer sentiment that are out there in the US and in other advanced economies. So traditional measures of consumer sentiment tend to be based on you know, relatively small sample sizes of, of interviews with um, consumers all sort of aggregated up and, and uh, accounted for various biases. But our data actually showed that you know, consumer sentiment was holding up relatively well. Those traditional measures had really seen a really big fall uh, fallback uh, really since since the summer of last year. And, and one of the things that we tried to show in the paper is that actually our reading of consumer sentiment is much more consistent with people's actual spending habits, um, which was which is definitely really interesting. If you don't mind, I just want to jump in there. Yeah. I think that's a really important point because we see a lot of noise in the news around, I mean, I've read countless articles about the price of eggs in the United States in the last few weeks and how Inflation is harming consumers. And there is connection here with with how people consume their news and then their confidence. But to your point, we are we are still seeing strong wages, not a wage spiral. It's moderating, but but they're remaining strong. The consumer still seems to be really strong and confident and out there spending in an appropriate way. I mean, you're starting to see a little bit of retail tail off, but in a way where it seems like we've got a little bit of a Goldilocks economy right now. And I think your data showed that that as well, and even kind of predicted that a little bit. But tell me if I'm I'm wrong, but I'm seeing this really play out this way. No, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, particularly when you think about the US, wages are really are really growing quite quickly. At the bottom end of the income spectrum, they're growing much faster. Um, and so you're seeing much less compression from inflation. So that combined with a pretty strong job outlook uh, really made us think, well, you know, you've got a consumer that that's relatively confident about its income. Yes, inflation is taking a bit of bite out of that, but they've also got quite big excess savings. And that distribution of excess savings, so the additional savings that people built up during the pandemic, that was a pretty big number. is at the peak about 12% of GDP. And it was quite broad-based, actually, um, in terms of the different parts of, of the economy and different um, income levels. So really, what, what I think our data has picked up is the fact that people weren't afraid to pull down on those savings and, and maintain spending despite the fact that you know inflation was quite high. And I, I think that was something that was missed by the traditional consumer sentiment indicators. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, I've sort of carried us into our second segment. So let me, let me pause here. We'll take a, a quick break. And when we come back, I want to dive into this a little bit more with Innes and Alberto of, of what we're seeing now, how some of these predictions have played out and what we might be seeing in the next couple of months. So... You're listening to What's at Stake. We'll be back in just a moment. Every two weeks, Penta measures U.S. adults' feelings and expectations toward the economy. The Civic Science Economic Sentiment Index, powered by Penta, 
accurately measures movements in overall national economic sentiment and provides a more sophisticated alternative to existing economic sentiment indices. To learn more, contact us at pentagroup.co. Welcome back to What's at Stake. Brian DeAngelis here, a partner at Penta, and I'm here with my colleague, Alberta Lopez Valenzuela and Innes McPhee, Managing Director at Oxford Economics. Innes, right before the break, we were we were kind of getting into where things stand now in the in the global economy. We touched a little bit on, as I mentioned, where recording this as the Federal Reserve is meeting here in the U.S. and we'll have a January jobs report coming out in a couple of days. So I'm curious, um, you know, we, we published our report in December. Can you tell us anything about how the data has changed in the last couple months, anything that it's showing you now, and, and then we'll get into any kind of trends we should maybe keep an eye on? Yeah, I think I think the big headline is that there's no there's no real sense that we've suddenly fallen off a cliff um, since we published the paper. Pretty much the trends that we talk about in the paper have been continued over the last two months or so. So overall sentiment in the labour market continues to deteriorate, and the overall level of sentiment remains relatively robust when you consider the pretty big headwinds: higher interest rates, particularly in the US, of course, and in Europe, the issues with much higher um, energy prices as well. So actually, I think is one of which we're seeing the trends that we outlined in the paper continued rather than there's been a big turning point. In particular, that means that wage growth you know, has remained broadly similar to the uh, November data that we included in the in the report. Um, and that's true across you know, the US, UK and Europe. And that will probably reassure the likes of the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, the ECB, that, that we're not about to break out into this much higher inflation regime. What's interesting is we have seen um, quite a bit of moderation in, in our indicator for wage growth in Canada. And that's perhaps not too surprising given that the economic outlook looks particularly difficult there relative to the rest of North America, just given what's going on with high levels of household debt, but also um, the ongoing sure. correction in the housing market. Otherwise, employment growth you know, remains pretty resilient across most economies. So really helps to bolster the case that we, we could well um, avoid a recession and that overall employment growth is still going to grow, albeit just at a reduced pace in most of the advanced economies. In addition, the consumer confidence indicators that we outlined in, in the paper back in November, they continue to, to trend down a bit, but certainly don't point to a big uh, reduction in spending from consumers uh, in the near term, at least. It's fascinating to hear you say that that we may avoid a recession, only in the sense of I, I was in this room a year ago where we were debating with some other folks on the podcast whether it would be a crash landing or <laughs> a soft landing. And I'm sure Alberto will agree. We've talked to a lot of clients in the past six months of, of what does recession planning look like? What could we be heading into in 2023? And it does seem like every time we talk about it, we push it a little further forward into the future. And I've said this before, but I'm, I'm becoming increasingly convinced that at least in the U.S., and I'm curious your take on, on what you're seeing in Europe, but that the Federal Reserve and, and Powell will pull off this soft landing, that there may be something we call a recession at some point, but the consumer will still be strong. The job market will be able to still be strong. Are you all seeing kind of the the same thing, both in your conversations and in the data? Definitely, I can. I, I'm actually seeing a much more positive market sentiment in the mm -hmm. U.S. Now I'm seeing 
uh, economists talking about Europe sort of avoiding a recession but getting into a stagnation. Mm-hmm. So uh, certainly things are things look less bleak than actually they look a year ago. Obviously, the effect of China as well and uh, and sort of uh, lifting the onerous COVID COVID restrictions. Yeah, COVID bans. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think. Uh, I mean, what's what's really interesting with all of this is is whether this is a, a self fulfilling prophecy, right? You know, right. That actually suddenly you get more positive sentiment, which actually leads to people feeling more confident about right about the economy and and so. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that idea. As we see whether it's better headlines or we start seeing better data, if the consumer actually starts reacting because they feel a little more confident, a little stronger. We've got to wind down here a little bit, but I really want to get to um, any other big takeaways we can glean from this report and data, especially for you, Alberto, as as you think about the listeners of this podcast, those in the business world, our CCOs, CEOs, and others, how should they be kind of thinking about these results and interpreting, you know, what insights they can bring back to their companies? So from from our perspective, we, we came into this with a very open mind. We didn't know what we were going to find uh, with the collaboration with Inex at the team at Oxford Economics. Mm-hmm. Now we've seen we've seen enough to actually feel excited about continue testing the hypothesis that stakeholder sentiment can be a lead indicator and support economic indicators and and addressing that sort of lagging nature. That economic indicators right. actually actually have in terms of clients, whether they are CEOs or chief corporate affairs or CMOs or chief sustainability directors, they all need to have a good understanding of the factors that impact trading conditions. So, well, we've talked about stakeholder sentiment and what it does, but stakeholder sentiment does not only indicate to our clients where they stand in the eyes of stakeholders but also how stakeholders feel about broader issues. Right. And it's important, I, but... I, I think broader issues such as employment, consumer spending, and so on. I think I think the understanding how stakeholders feel help our clients be more in control of the outcomes of their planning and hopefully be better prepared of the future. So I think this is something that we've discussed many times in, in, in this podcast and and internally in the business, it's about finding within all these data sets that we have, finding the insights that really help our clients be more in control and stay ahead of. And pulling it all back into the yeah. bigger picture, right? How are yeah. investors feeling about economy? How are employees and prospective employees, customers, and then policymakers? Exactly. And there's very few who can look at all four of these groups and and help advise and inform the decision makers at these companies. And I think a lot of the work you've done, Alberto, and these great partnerships we've done with Oxford Economics helps bring all those pieces together. For folks. Absolutely. What's, what's clear is that actually stakeholders, they influence each other. That's right. You know, yeah. They are not yeah. they don't operate in isolation. No. You know. So so it's really understanding this connectivity that's super important. And and when we can actually link it with economic indicators, it's even much more insightful. Insightful, yeah. Well, gentlemen, I I this has been a fascinating conversation, but I, I think we have to leave it there for time. I 
want to invite both of you back for for the next white paper we do. This is uh, an any time really to share insights because I think this is great work and, and hugely informative to our audience. So I, uh, I appreciate you both coming on today. I really enjoyed having you as guests. For our listeners, uh, be sure to check out the show notes. We'll include links to to the report and some of the, the key findings that Ennis and Alberto and their teams have pulled out of there. Tune in every week for new episodes like this one of What's at Stake and subscribe to the Penta podcast channel wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at PentaGRP or on our website, pentagroup.co, for more information. I'm Brian DeAndros. As always, thank you so much for listening to What's at Stake, and we'll see you again next week.